The Lightning Network is a network of micropayment channels as a layer on top of Bitcoin. Its purpose is to scale up the possible number of transactions in Bitcoin and lower transaction fees. I thought Lightning Network was really interesting. I didn't hear about it until I was researching this episode, but my main takeaway from my research has been that Lightning Network enables Bitcoin to evolve from what is currently a store of value to an actual currency that you can use every day. And so this opens up a future in which decentralized payments can be arbitrarily small and arbitrarily frequent, which allows people to create new incentive structures that are different from what we are using today. Hi, this is Will. I'm a YC alum and independent researcher who has worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and financial industries. Hey, this is Shri. I'm a YC alum also and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. We're just two guys discussing edgy, fringe, or overlooked technologies over a couple of drinks. Our show has four segments. First, we give a high-level outline of what it is. Second, we talk about what it can do today. Then we let our imagination, optimism, take over and see how the world would change if the technology was readily adopted everywhere. And lastly, if we believe in this future, how can we take a position on it? I mean, we can't be experts in everything we cover, so if you've got insights on this topic, let us know in the comments. And be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can go about your day as you listen. But first, in the spirit of discussing over drinks, what are, we, what are you drinking today? So I've got this Rowdy Mermaid Adapt. Tonic, I guess. So yeah, it's got some <laughs> right. bizarre things in there. It's got reishi mushrooms and this thing, beta glucans. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say you picked the can with the ugliest color. And I'm sure that's like got appetizing things in there. And so I was right. Yeah. <laughs> the ingredients match Indeed. the color. <laughs> I decided to pick up maroyaka, ichigo, and milk. So I guess this is like strawberry milk. Ooh. I think it's like a... Is it a yogurt drink of some sort? But I think it's just strawberry milk, honestly. And it's basically like a sugar drink. So I was feeling something a little bit more sugary today, but we'll see. But yeah. So are you ready for our topic this week? Yeah. So what are we discussing this week? We are discussing the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network is a network of micropayment channels as a layer on top of Bitcoin. Its purpose is to scale up the possible number of transactions in Bitcoin and lower transaction fees. So have you heard a little bit about Lightning Network and through your research, what's been your take as to like why this thing is so special? Yeah, so I thought Lightning Network was really interesting. I didn't hear about it until I was researching this episode, but my main takeaway from my research has been that Lightning Network enables Bitcoin to evolve from what is currently a store of value to an actual currency that you can use every day. And so this opens up a future in which decentralized payments can be arbitrarily small and arbitrarily frequent, which allows people to create new incentive structures that are different from what we are using today. Yeah, and so I also thought it was pretty interesting. This has been on my list of things to look into for a while now. And I think I was a surprised that it was controversial, I guess, to, to an extent. And we can talk about that in a bit, but also that they were using payment channels it's something that the Ethereum ecosystem also considered, but instead they decided to go with different technology for layer two scaling solutions, such as optimistic rollups, which maybe we should cover in a future episode so that we can compare and contrast. Yeah. But I think one of the first things about the Lightning Network is that it's a layer on top of Bitcoin. So we should talk about what sort of problem the Lightning Network is supposed to solve before we get to all the stuff that it does. 
So one of the things about Bitcoin is that its block time is 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes, there's like a new set of transactions that get written onto the distributed ledger. And the current block size is about two to four megs. I think it can vary. And so one of the issues with that is given a certain amount of time and a fixed block size, then that means you can only have a certain number of transactions that occur. And I think if you break it down, it comes down to about like something around seven transactions per second, something really low. And then in the same breath, most people compare that transaction speed to Visa, which then is like in the thousands. And so they're like, okay, if we believe that digital currency like Bitcoin is here to stay to help, you know, replace these centralized actors, like how can we scale that thing up? And so people have tried a lot of different things from like forking Bitcoin so that they can increase the block size and shorten the confirmation times for the blocks. And for the most part, none of those other blockchains managed to supersede Bitcoin in terms of total value out there. And so for example, like Litecoin, I think they, they re reduced the amount of time. Do you remember what it was? couple minutes less than 10 whatever it is and then dogecoin yeah. even more and so and then i think like bitcoin cash yeah i don't know our viewers out there can probably like tell us more about like all the different factions that that had different ideas about this but if i were to defer to authority there's a guy named adam back and he is a security and distributed systems researcher and his take on bitcoin was that he tried to improve it in multiple ways and every time he tried to improve it along one dimension it got worse than all the other ones and so <laughs> in a sense like bitcoin's design possibilities can only occupy like a very small space and so if we want to add scalable transactions to it i think people have started to come around to the idea that maybe we need to layer another set of financial protocols on top of bitcoin and then use the on-chain Bitcoin as the settlement layer and then have a payments layer on top. And so I think that's where part of the controversy comes from because there are still people, there are people that are out there that don't believe this. They want increased block size and so on and so forth. And so I think you can get a lot of that elsewhere. So we won't cover that, but for our listeners, just yeah. so that you know, this exists. So, yeah. And so, so yeah. then, then that's kind of where we're at with using the lightning network to help scale the Bitcoin network so that we can actually use it as a currency rather than just as a store of value. Yeah, interesting. So as much as on this podcast, I'm a huge crypto fanatic, <laughs> it might seem, <laughs> I'm actually not super familiar with the nuances of the implementation details of, of Bitcoin and things like this. But if I were to try to summarize for myself what you just said, I think that the the main problem that I saw Lightning try to solve, and what you're saying as well, is that there, the volume of transactions that occur in the world, if you were to look at traditional finance systems like Visa, for example, is much higher than can be put through the system of, of Bitcoin as it is. And that's because it has certain parameters, such as block size and confirmation time and things like this, which dictate the costs of the various stakeholders in the network. So whether those are the nodes that maintain the integrity of the, the Bitcoin network, or if you are one of the parties in a transaction, the the security and integrity of whether your money was, has successfully been transferred. 
And so if yeah. you were to play around with those parameters, then there are some compromises that one or the other party would have to make, which would be suboptimal compared to how Bitcoin currently is set up. And so yeah. Lightning is basically saying, we're not going to toggle around with the parameters of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is good as it is for the job that it does, which is being a highly secure settlement layer uh, of, of transactions, right? That's with no, no centralized actor. With no centralized actor, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And then if we want faster, lightweight payments on top of that, then we don't put that burden on Bitcoin. We actually are going to build on top of that a different abstraction layer, which is going to facilitate all the small transactions that somebody might want to do day to day. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess then at a high level, like how does the Lightning Network work? Like how is it actually put together? And so I think the best way to understand and picture the basic building block of the Lightning Network is the payment channel. And basically the real world analogy for a payment channel is a bar tab. And so between you and me, if we open up a bar tab with each other, I can say, hey, pour me a drink and then you do it and then I pay you and we can trade IOUs with each other and we don't have to settle up until the end of our transaction. And so a payment channel is effectively that where we would be able to take funds on chain and create a contract that commits us to funding the payment channel. And then we do the IOUs between the two of us off chain until we're ready to settle back on again. And so that's the payment channel. And so now if there were a whole bunch of people besides the two of us, then you might have a payment channel with both me and Alice, like some other person. And if I wanted to send money to Alice and I don't have a direct channel to her, then I can send it through you basically. So we can just kind of daisy chain our payment channels or bar tabs together. And if you have a whole network of this, then we can just do that like a distributed IOU system and then settle up whenever we want to get our money out. And so that that's basically it in a nutshell. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting because a lot of the descriptions of Lightning made it really clear to me that Bitcoin and and blockchain transactions overall are kind of heavyweight in that when you commit something to the chain, you're basically immortalizing it. You were saying that you know, like, God is my witness, this thing has truly happened, right? And and by God, I mean the, the right. total hash power of all the nodes in the entire network mm -hmm. as yeah. my witness, this thing has truly happened. And that's great, right? This is super great because it really enforces, you know, very strong bounds and strong guarantees on on the state of, of, of the network. But honestly, yeah, if it's just you and me, you know, sending each other 10 bucks so that we can buy each other beers, do we really need to have this be witnessed by the entire hash power of the entire Bitcoin right. network? Probably not, right? Right. right. <laughs> we would just like account for that between the two of us on a little post-it note or informally or whatever. And so mm -hmm. I thought that that was an interesting observation and an interesting way of reframing the use of a, of a blockchain that for certain types of transactions, they don't necessarily need to be broadcast to the entire world. They can be basically settled or, or, or transacted at least initially, between the two parties that are involved, and only at the end of the night, let's say, that we're going to close out our tab, 
that's when we say, okay, this is actually real, and we, you know, we're going to let the world know that this is how much money we each respectively have. Yeah, and it's actually how the real, I guess, the first financial network works, anyways. Apparently, there is a settlement layer called Fire, Fire, Firewire, maybe. I think so. Fedwire, where, like Fedwire. Oh yeah, yeah, Fedwire. Yeah. Where? Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't put it for financial institutes to come up with such a cool name called Firewire, so it's probably <laughs> Fedwire. Yeah. The, yeah, it's just a settlement layer, and it happens pretty slowly. And so, obviously, like your credit card transactions aren't on there. They're, they're all batched up for the day or something like that, and everybody settles at the end of the day. And so, it's, this is not uncommon. I think one of the reasons why it seems odd, like a lot of people conceived of Bitcoin as having a payments thing, like it should be able to do payments thing also, I think it's because like most of us don't know how our financial systems work. Like it's pretty opaque to us. And like when you hear like Patio 11 talk about how things actually work, you're like, that's how things work. But you know, like this is dec decades, if not like a century of cruft that's like built up. And some of it is for good reason, apparently. Like having a settlement layer and a payment layer on top of it, then like different layers have different properties and different responsibilities and so maybe that's like a good thing just like programming i guess like different layers have different responsibilities so yeah i i think i can buy that argument yeah yeah i don't know too much about the, the existing financial system but yeah you're right there's like a, a bunch of terminology like even between you know payments between parties at least in the u.s used to go through this thing called ach and in the rest of the world it's swift yeah. there are a lot of nuances to how payments are transmitted between individuals and then between banks and then not even just between banks but between the central banks of sovereign governments and yeah. we're all kind of unaware of those things but i think as we're building a new financial system that is decentralized and digital uh, we're going to slowly maybe reinvent a lot of these things yeah yeah and rediscover why they were there in the first place for those of you that want to follow Patio11 on Twitter, like on occasion, he'll ramble off uh, some of these, like how, how the sausage is made on financial networks, among other things. So uh, check them out. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think one of the things that Lightning Network also attempts to do is try to lower the transaction fees. And also they have contingency plans built in as to disputes and so if you and i open a payment channel with each other and say like i try to commit one of the older transactions between us back on chain where i had more money then the chain would be able to tell and the reason for this is that there is an adjudication script or a smart contract on the main chain on bitcoin where it can tell whether something is an old transaction or not and it can do that because the contract in which you and i funded the payment channel into is cryptographically signed by both of us. So every time that we have an IOU between the two of us, both of us have to cryptographically sign off on it in order to make it valid. And so if one of us tries to write an old transaction back on chain, then it'll know not to accept that. And so like, that's just to say that there are mechanisms about these like edge cases where people don't cooperate and we won't go into too much detail, with it because there's definitely plenty of other podcasts that get into it and but we'll put more of those in the show notes but that's just to say that for those of you wondering like so what happens when like a bunch of adversarial actors out there on this network like what happens and so they they do try to take care of those edge cases as well yeah i think that's really interesting and actually i think it's interesting because adversarial 
payment channels isn't something that, that I had considered until reading about Lightning because in the traditional way of thinking about transactions, you're paying somebody who you know. Uh, know as in this is a party who you have some reason to transact with. Maybe you know their identity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know something about them, right? And so you're going to send them something. And Lightning kind of says, actually, you don't need to necessarily know much about the party on the other end of the transaction. In the same way that when you are navigating the internet, uh, you don't know very much about the servers that are on the other end of your connection. You can just or, or say, in between, honestly, <laughs> or, or in, in between your connection. Yeah, yeah. And so you can basically, you know, when you're when you're navigating the internet. You just know the address of the uh, the other party, and then you are able to open up a connection to the other side. In between, all kinds of stuff happens, right? Other your ISP talks to a bunch of other stuff, and eventually ends up at their ISP, which then talks to them. And and there's this sort of implicit way of routing data between the two of you, but you don't actually know anything about each other. You don't have a pre-established relationship with the servers yeah. that you are you're communicating with, and that's how we think of data on the web or on the internet. But we don't typically think of payments that way. The interesting thing about Lightning and the second point that you brought up, which was the routing network, is that it makes payments very similar to sending packets of data uh, over the internet. Yeah, that's the comparison that's often been made when people talk about Lightning, how it's, it's akin to routing packets on the internet. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I thought that was that was interesting. I hadn't really thought of payments in that way before. Because you always thought about it as a point-to-point -point sort of thing between two parties, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's and not just any two parties. Yeah, it's just like it seems like if if two parties are transacting, that there was was a certain level of pre-established relationship right, between them, trust between but here, them. Here and now we we got a whole bunch of people in between us, right? Yeah, and, and so I thought that was cool. All right, like if if we can just reduce payments to something as simple as the same way that you send a packet of data to thousands of servers every single mm -hmm. day and you don't even know anything about them, then that can really change the way in which you know payments occur digitally. Right. Yeah, and, and definitely routing is one of those points of contention, I, I would say, between fans of Lightning and detractors of Lightning, which we'll get to in a little bit. But like, put a pin in that and we will get right back into it. Yeah. But I, I want to say like definitely... The thing that caught my eye about Lightning is exactly what you said, that I guess in, crypto, in cryptocurrencies, like adversarial anything is par for course. But thinking about payments as a network where you have to traverse it makes it an interesting problem nonetheless. I mean, it's definitely nerd sniping at its best, so I'll give it that. <laughs> <laughs> and so given that, I, I think one of the interesting things is not just the technology that enables it, but like what sort of behaviors does this enable itself? And so usually when people see new technologies, they often compare it to the existing technologies and evaluate it on, in the terms of what the existing technology can do. So oftentimes in Lightning, they'll be compared to the credit card networks and payment networks like, I don't know, whatever Visa, MasterCard are on, right? And so they're like, well, this does the same thing, but it's worse. And so like, why would I do it? And so that's a common fallacy and the often quote innovators dilemma. And despite it being such a commonly known book in Silicon Valley, people commit this error all the time for no good reason. And so I think the, the thing that we would like to ask is like, what does it let us do today? Like what's the new thing that it does? Like, is it better along some line 
that is much better than it, at, at anything else. And so I think what it could do today is basically fast payments with low fees in Bitcoin. Because today, most people aren't going to use Bitcoin as payment unless they're in very different circumstances that forces them to do it. Either they really like their cypherpunk ideas of financial independence from any centralized entity or government, or they're in one of those war-torn countries in which it's very dangerous to travel with cash on your persons, right? And so in those like more extreme circumstances outside of being in a first world developed country with working judicial system and you know, laws that help corporations capture value, you know, like then you're going to use it as a, a store of value. So this then opens it up for the rest of us. So I, I think that that's one. And then the other thing is, I think it probably opens up payments in more developed countries. And so that's kind of what it's doing today. Although when I looked at the geographic distribution of nodes on the Lightning Network, there weren't nearly as many on the developing third world countries. But the fact that there are some means that they can connect to anybody in first world countries and send payments to them, which I think Bitcoin is often used for remittances, which is like international payments back home, right? Mm -hmm. If you're like working, in, if you're from a foreign country, you work in the US and then you want to like take the money that you earn and send it to family back home. Like usually there's like a steep, steep, fee because in the traditional financial system it's complicated and banks need to like call up each other like your local bank needs to call the regional bank and then maybe the national bank and then the national bank needs to talk to the national bank of the other country and then go back down and then connect all that and takes a while and so if if you want to kind of escape all that and you know you're okay with six confirmations so that's an hour six times ten you know that's way easier than waiting two weeks right and so so, so I think, I think that's the sort of thing that enables today. Interesting. So basically, would you say that lightning is a way, one outcome of lightning today would be that people in first world countries who have a bunch of Bitcoin that's just sitting around and they're just like, well, why would I use this? Cause I have a visa card and I have the US dollar and I can just walk around and it's fine. Lightning would be would be a way in which it would be more feasible for somebody like you and me who live in the in the U.S. to say part with our Bitcoin basically and say okay well like this is this is a way in which this stuff that I have sitting around is actually useful and usable. Mm -hmm. Wait, so what's the question? <laughs> I, I I guess is that is that one is that one of the outcomes? Like what what's the what's the other? So that's that's the that's the first world use case. And then is there you're you're mentioning another use case, like a, a, a use case for people who don't live in in this kind of society. Oh well, the the fact that they can do payments at all, because like payment infrastructure in less developed countries just does not exist, and so so like I mean like in some African countries they have leveraged the mobile networks, like you can get minutes for credit, you can buy credits for minutes, and they use that as as digital money to send money so i buy some minutes on my end i send it digitally over the phone network and then you get some digital minutes and then you can sell that on your end and then get money and so they, they basically like layered it on that way but yeah lightning lets people send payments to each other even within that country or internationally without having a really working financial system that we enjoy in the first world mm, got it yeah it's interesting actually because if you look at a lot of the big tech companies like Google and and Facebook and and things 
a big part of their next billion users strategy, next billion users being the users who are in the developing world and are coming mm-hmm. online through through mobile phones and things like that. A big pillar yeah. of that strategy is actually providing them payment solutions. And so it's clear that these corporations who come from a very centralized payments infrastructure point of view see that there is value to capture by allowing users who are currently unbanked or they're just simply not able to transact with each other digitally, these corporations see value in bringing them onto these proprietary payment systems and and somehow maybe taking a cut of those transactions uh, and things like this. And so I think that's cool. Yeah. But it's also right. a little and, predatory, and so the, I think. Right. Well, the difference there is that they, they know that they can capture that value if they own the network in like a developing country. So you get you end up with like a tech company, not the government, being able to see all your transactions. And so I think people like it better than not having a payments network. But like once you get there, it's a little bit dystopian. And having Lightning Network in which you can send payments around the network and you still retain more privacy than you would otherwise, I mean, that is a win, I think, for, for people in general. So so I, th- I think that that's, that's what makes Lightning an important part of any infrastructure, I guess, right? And so we all know what happens when a large company owns like a critical infrastructure, like their incentives might misalign once they get big enough and start to want to cash in on stuff. And so people are usually never happy when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so I think that's that's kind of mainly what people are doing it today. Definitely like there are some critiques of Lightning as it stands today. I think it's still relatively small. Like compared to DeFi, it's pretty small. There's only like four to 5,000 Bitcoins funding the entire Lightning Network so far as of April 2022 and about 87,000 channels that are open today. And so I think it's just still early, but it's growing. Like if you look at the graphs, like it is growing exponentially. So what is the significance of those numbers? Is it that that is a limiting factor on the volume of transactions that can flow through this network? When you say that there's only four to 5,000 Bitcoins of liquidity on that network? Yeah, yeah. So the the way that the payments channel work is that every node on the Lightning Network is funded by some Bitcoin that they took off-chain. And in order to send payments, basically, like, I send a little to you and you send a little to Alice. It basically just daisy chains. I think that's one way to think about it. And so if I'm trying to send too much money through the network, there could be no route that has enough money to move all the money that I want through the network because it's not like it's breaking up my money into different paths at the moment. So like if I want to send like 20 Bitcoin, I don't think it could support it because like there's no single path through the network in which everybody has 20 Bitcoin that can then pass it along, right? And I see. Right. And so also the routing algorithm doesn't break up my 20 Bitcoin and try to find multiple paths through it, even if the entire network has more than 20. Like, there's no single path that has 20. Got it. Okay, so this is, this is I'm imagining like a, a network diagram in which you have like directed edges that have some weight. And then if this were the internet, the, these edges would maybe like represent 
the bandwidth of the link between these two. Yeah, yeah. You can think of the equivalent of bandwidth as how much money is available to daisy chain your payment along the entire route. Got it. Okay. So it's it, it's uh, still a pretty small network today. Like it, it can't handle visa level transactions, basically. I don't think so. Yeah, and so I, I think the some of the controversy stems around like when detractors look at its potential even beyond what it can do today. They're like, mm, I don't know if if this will work. And so I think f- for me also, the routing is what concerns me the most. So in the internet, routing works in a decentralized fashion, all the nodes along the way help you route your packet. So all you have to do is say like where it's from and where it's going and you send it off onto the next thing. And each node along the way has routing tables that say, okay, I don't know exactly where this goes, but I can send it a little bit closer. And then it sends it to the node that it thinks is a little bit closer. I mean, I I haven't taken a networking class since college. And so that would be my summary for that. Uh, Maybe you can fill it in. would that be relatively accurate or would you fill it in with something else? No, no, no. This is this is exactly how the, the internet works. And the, the re- <laughs> it's just a series of pipes. Yeah. It is a series of pipes and sometimes it can go wrong with the things like BGP, black holing and things. But no, I, I think the, the reason this works is because on the internet, every node along the, the route is able to look at the, the header, the packet header and say, this is the destination. And then from there say, oh, I know a little bit about how to get this a little closer to its destination. Whereas I think in, in the lightning network, they use this thing called onion routing, which is a way in which the intermediate nodes along the path are actually unaware of the contents of the transaction, of, of the amount, or also the destination. And so they yeah, they don't are, they don't know the source or the destination. They only know like the immediate node that it's coming from across the payment channel, and then the next one that they have to forward it to. Yeah. So so they can't be very helpful. And so, so the controversy, and, and uh, you you mentioned this in the pregame, is that. In order to send money to someone or, or make a transaction across this network, the sender has to basically have a copy of the network and then do some graph search algorithm to find the optimal route. Is that, is that how this works? Yeah, apparently the, the sender gets the topography of the network and the node has to calculate the route to the receiver and construct the route that way. I guess if we were to draw a real world analogy, like I would be putting envelopes inside of envelopes. And so if it's a three hop, then I would have like one envelope inside another envelope inside another. And then I send it to you. You open the outer envelope and then look at the address of the next one and then send that envelope on down the chain. And then the next person would do the same. Hmm. And so in that way, all the intermediate nodes wouldn't know where it came from or where it's finally going but it just knows like what it got and where it has to send it next, uh, what the next hop is. And I mean, definitely I can see why they did it this way where it's per- privacy preserving, but then I don't know. I, I haven't really thought about it much or looked at it, but I want to say maybe there's a different way. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Like, I'm just saying, oh, like for no <laughs> apparent reason, but, but I don't know that that seems like it's a pretty heavy trade-off because one of the issues for the send node to have to calculate the entire route is that this network changes on every transaction, I think, because then it changes the amount that every node has. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that you evaluate a good route is like how much money does each node have, whether it responds quickly, and 
I think a couple other heuristics, but those those are the main ones. So like on every transaction, that kind of alters the entire network. So there, it must be pretty chatty, like the the gossip network for what has changed in the network. And so that that makes me hesitate. Like there, there's got to be a better way. And so definitely, there's been research into it. Uh, I think there's a paper called Flare, where they they have a bunch of different techniques there. We'll link to it in the show notes. I did not read it, but I assume they're doing good work. I have to believe it. I guess. But but yeah, that that's kind of where we are with Lightning Network. But I would say that that's probably the biggest hang up for me about like whether this whole thing will work or not. Right. Beyond its yeah, well beyond its current current levels right now because right now with like eighty-seven thousand channels and thousand nodes like it's working perfectly fine like i mean people do have issues with getting things sent but your experience depends on which payment channels you're connected to and if people evaluate you to be like a crappy node then maybe it's harder for you to get yourself sent to so yeah it it almost feels like they're reinventing a lot of the internet infrastructure, right? Because we do we do have things like doing peering and things where they say, oh, I know that this other provider provides a reliable route for internet traffic. And so I'm going to prefer this route versus some other arbitrary route. And there are all kinds of layers to, to routing on the internet. And so I wonder if some of those ideas are going to percolate into, into lightning. Yeah, I don't know. And and are there any like old timey people that worked on the original internet and like are, do any of them work on Lightning? I want I wonder, right? Yeah, but presumably the internet is so old that hopefully some of these Lightning folks are are aware and reading the design of yeah, the the old papers and stuff like that. Yeah, but but it's slightly different because like the 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 internet routes packets through it whereas it's the and nodes of senders that have to do it. And so, mm-hmm. Al, oh, one one other thing to mention about this: this can be an issue for mobile wallets because they don't have enough either bandwidth or processing power to calculate the route, and so they do have to delegate to other servers that calculates routes for them. And so, this kind of feels like a hacky mm-hmm. solution to me, but that that's one of the consequences that fall out for, from this kind of design. Got it. Actually, I, as we were talking about this, I was like, oh, this sounds like quite a, a lot of process in order to to send money and transact over the internet. And so I wanted to like try to check my understanding, and, and maybe this would be helpful for, for our listeners as well. So the reason why we have all this routing shenanigans is that sort of in the limit, right, assuming everybody is on the Lightning Network, then in order to actually have point-to-point connection, which would be the ideal way in which you send money between two parties— would require, uh, theoretically, n-square connections, right? Where, where n is large and n-square is unimaginably large. And the, the issue is that there is a cost in order to establish a channel, a connection between two pairs mm-hmm. in this network, in that there is a smart yeah. contract that needs to be published to the main Bitcoin chain, right, in order to establish this two-party smart contract. And that's an expensive operation. And so in the same way that we don't you know, dig holes between every pair of nodes and, and computers on the internet, right? And run or a wire. Put between highways them. between everybody's houses. Houses. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So 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 rather than this, we instead we create networks and, and, and the purpose of the network is to maintain connectivity between any arbitrary nodes in a graph while still having a sparsity of edges between them. Right. So you don't need everybody connected to everybody. You can just have some some roads and highways between them and eventually you'd be able to find a path between any two people. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think so. And also if you had like that N squared open channels, like you'd need to write 
and settle on the chain and uh, like some fraction of 7 billion people are going to want to settle on the blockchain with each other and there's just no way that the block size is big enough for that and so that's why we have we, we route between people rather than having the n squared connections yeah n squared connections basically just ends up being you might you're just transacting on chain again right which is back to the original yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Right, right 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 yeah so so that's that's kind of where we are today but i, I say despite the the reservations that i have i mean like i think it's pretty exciting because i think the main promise of the lightning network is that it can provide low value but high volume types of payments and so we were talking earlier about the innovators dilemma of comparing lightning network to its predecessor visa and i think one of the things about the lightning network that it does well compared to the incumbent is that you can send really really small transactions like one satoshi is like or 100 million satoshis is one bitcoin i think mm -hmm. and so that's a really small amount of money and so i think and so then it is an infrastructure that fulfills the long dreamt idea of micropayments yeah these that's are a this weird is way to phrase it this is beyond micropayments, right? Micro being like one to the negative three. Well, a hundred millionths of a of a Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't know. That's like a nano, nano payment. So, so this is basically the the interesting thing is like it almost makes money into a continuous value, right? Like whereas, oh yeah, yeah. Like I mean, money. If you think about money as a as a as a floating point number, it seems continuous, but actually. In in reality, we transact with a certain size of transaction. That's it's either controlled by the level of precision in your currency, right? You only often only can go down right. to cents, or actually more mm -hmm. often than not, the limiting factor is in the transaction fees of the network. And so, if you if you do something like buy something on the Visa network, a lot of the stores will only allow you to make a minimum order size uh, before they put it through the network because it's too expensive otherwise. Visa charges a fee that's so high that it's not worth sending tiny amounts of money across their network. Whereas in Lightning, you can do you can do that. Yeah, Visa and like other networks, they really discourage merchants from making penny transactions because the, the overhead of doing so is just not worth it for them to process that amount. And so they really discourage it and they'll especially charge a fee for that. And, and so I suspect that that's probably because there is an underlying floor of cost to processing transactions on the network that that beans up the floor and so the lightning network routes payments through its network without it's not entirely free from human intervention like people that are operating the nodes still have to do some twiddling but when transactions are going through like it's not there's no humans involved in the routing like it's all done ahead of time right mm -hmm. and so then you can drive down the cost of making a transaction because a person wasn't involved there and so then that means that you can have really small payments and the network the, the unit economics will still work out and so then it facilitates these new use cases in which you can charge for things that you normally wouldn't think of charging and i think that are the that is the type of thing that I think can change the way our world works. And it's been the dream of people in the micropayment space for a long time. So, but yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think this is where it gets really interesting. And this is this is what we do this whole podcast for. So let's say that we have this world in which we can send arbitrarily tiny, continuous 
valued amounts of payments to anybody arbitrarily frequently, right? So you can just stream money. Yeah. You can basically imagine it as a, like constantly stream money, small packets of money from point to point on this network. What kinds of transactions would be happening aren't happening today? Yeah, I mean, I could think of a couple. Did you find it tough to kind of come up with stuff? Like I had to think for a little bit because it's kind of outside our normal realm. Like you got to think of like fractions of a penny, like thousandth or hundred thousandth of a penny. Like what would you yeah. even charge for that, right? <laughs> and so I, I think one of the things that leapt out at me was meter API usage. So there are a lot of APIs out there um, and oftentimes they're charged by usage rather than a fixed fee per month or per day or something like that. And so I think people generally find that to be fair because if you use a lot of it, you pay more. If you use less, you pay less. And presumably because the fixed costs are so cheap for compute, you can just keep driving the price down, especially when you have competitors that will compete on price. And eventually you'll, you might differentiate on something else besides price, but that, that'll drive the price down below a cent or less. And so I think when you have machine-to-machine -machine transactions, I mean, I, I think that's where the micropayments will come into play or, or become really useful. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I think machine-to-machine -machine transactions are interesting because when we usually think about API metering or paying for services on the internet, like, like we were talking about before, there's a certain amount of trust and relationship that is established between the two parties so you can imagine if you're paying aws or something you start an account with them you fill in your billing address and your your billing credentials and whatever and now you have a payment account with them and now after a certain amount of process then only are you able to pay aws and they are willing to give you some service in return for that and so that's a pretty high friction actually if you think about it most of mm -hmm. the processes that we imagine happening between computers and just using computers typically don't involve that type of huge initial setup time. And so in this world where we have Lightning Network, where you have trustless transactions between parties, then you can interact with any provider of services, whether it's compute, storage, email, whatever it is, chat communications, I don't know, the variety of protocols that you might want to, to have. You don't need to establish some pre-existing relationship with them. And that actually disintermediates a player like AWS because it means that anybody now can compete for my business because now I don't need to sign up for an account with them, do all this stuff with them, give me my the credit yeah. card details, et cetera, et cetera. Anybody can say, hey, mm -hmm. I will provide you the service. Why don't you give me this price for it? And I'll say, okay, cool. You know, And then I just stream them money using Lightning and, and they, they'll fulfill whatever task needs to be done. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Like, definitely there's a lot of friction in payments. There's been plenty of times where I want to give money to some service and they just, like, I'm trying to pay you, I'm trying to throw money at you and you just, like, screwed up how I can do that is extremely frustrating. But, like, having a pre-built, like, payments network, I mean, I guess they still have to do the integration right, but, like, short of that, I, I mean, like, that's already available. Like, they don't need to introduce me to, you know, like, getting a wallet or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And along that lines, I think something that might be kind of weird and definitely controversial in the developer world is if you meter not just API calls, but code or libraries. Mm. And so, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, open source often talks about how it's just really hard to keep going. I don't think funding is the only problem. It's 
it's one of many. I think I saw a quote recently about how open source maintainers is like goodwill hunting in reverse. First, you start out as a genius, and then you end up as a janitor that fights with people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that, that, but that aside, there's a bunch of issues with funding, and DHH from Ruby on Rails likes the fact that. He people don't pay him for his open source contributions because A, he's intrinsically motivated, but also B, a transaction would beholden him to other people that he doesn't want to be beholden to. So he's perfectly fine from not being paid. But then other people, like there's what, open SSH is only maintained by like a handful of people that are grossly underpaid and they support a lot of the encryption and safe networking across the web and giant companies leverage this but you know they don't have to pay any money for it so yeah i'm not sure exactly what it is i personally don't like the idea but i'm thinking in this direction to prime my mind for like what could you actually meter that you currently aren't metering right so so basically when we're talking about code and library meeting we're, we're saying that open source maintainers need to be compensated for their work and one way that they can be compensated for their work is that maybe on every install or import or even more granularly every function call that you make into an open source yeah. library they get a little cut yeah yeah that's that's effectively it it's it's a weird world i mean i guess maybe it's okay if your bill at the end of the day is 50 cents but i, I don't know that people are going to like it if it ends up being 500 dollars, right yeah yeah i mean i think i think funding models for software whether they're proprietary software or open source software funding models across the board are broken and you remember npm had to crack down on libraries having post install hooks where they're like please donate money to us right and everybody was doing this yeah yeah and so whenever you installed anything it was just a big mess on your console uh, and so i think that in that case it could be a nice alternative when developers learn marketing yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't love the idea myself, honestly, but like I said, it's a, it's a way to kind of get prime my head for this because it is kind of a weird world to try to imagine what sort of things you would charge for it that is just so small that most people don't bother. I think it would be really interesting to charge at the functional function call level almost. Like, that's, that's, I think it's silly, and I don't think that's that maybe the right way to fund projects like this, but, I mean, in the limit, that's what something like Lightning allows you to do. Previously... You would think that it's silly well, to no, put it. No, I don't know. You you could charge for every bit flip <laughs> in your memory or in your RAM. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, if you had hooks into into that, <laughs> yeah, why not? This this is the kind of weird mind bending use cases that Lightning enables. You wouldn't think of putting a Stripe API call in the middle of some you know core path of open source library, <laughs> right? Or in the hardware of your CPU. Yes, I mean it's just ludicrous, right? Yeah, and and, and maybe you don't necessarily want to put you know, a lightning payment in the in the critical path of your, you know, open source library either. But yeah, I mean, it makes it significantly less, I, I guess it significantly reduces the friction compared to traditional payments. And so you could start putting metering and payments in places where you wouldn't expect. Yeah, and let, let's just get all the bad ideas out of our system. Let's do the it. The thing I was thinking about, right, <laughs> is if keyboards were metered, I mean, like, I mean... <laughs> I mean, that might be a way to help fund, say, consumer hardware with, like, every usage or something like that. I mean, it's ridiculous if... I, I think people will not like it, for sure. Like, then you would suspect whether they were key logging or something like that, right? But, like, yeah. being charged for every key that you typed, it just feels... I think it feels ridiculous. So there there, there might be, like, better ways to kind of do this sort of thing. Yeah. 
So so did you come up with like better ideas than I did on on these first couple of goes? No, I, I honestly think that all of the ideas for this type of network just sound inherently silly because we're not used to thinking of value flowing this way. Like it almost seems petty, right? Like this is like literally <laughs> right, right. you're nickel and diming people. Right? <laughs> yeah, but but I think in general, and and we'll we'll go into some other ideas, but I think in general the idea of demand based usage based pricing is if you were to talk to an economist or at least certain types of economists they would believe that that is an optimal way of pricing because it means that you're charging people for the value that they're getting out of a good or service rather than charging people uniformly across the board some price which maybe doesn't necessarily fit the value that's being delivered to them and and you see this with other types of things like like let's say Uber right doing surge pricing and things yeah. like this dynamic pricing right right and and so to an economist, this type of metering, it, it, to us, it seems like nickel and diming, but maybe in the in the overall economic view of things, this is a way for people to get recognized for the value that they're providing in proportion to the value that they're providing rather than at arbitrary, discrete, fixed increments, which don't necessarily have anything to do with the value that they're actually providing. Yeah, and the usually, like, I think, like, airlines are notorious for this sort of price segmentation to find people that are willing to pay more just make them pay more and so this is a way where you you pay directly for the amount of value that you're getting out which is the usage so from api to code it then led me to your ideas shri about an idea accreditation network like originally i conceived of something like this for maybe work but I guess I'll let you take it away. Like, this is kind of a weird idea. And so I don't know if I'll be able to do it justice, but maybe you can. Yeah, this is an idea that I think I floated in a variety of episodes before, but most notably the very first episode of the first season, which was this idea that basically ideas, knowledge is valuable. And we have people who are sharing bits of information on the internet, maybe they're writing it up on Twitter, maybe they're taking notes and, and putting up, you know, Rome research pages, Notion pages, etc. right? They're creating units of knowledge. And I think that the great thing about the internet and social media is that people then build upon that knowledge, right? And they advance ideas collectively, at least in the idealistic case of the use case of the internet. So people take each other's ideas, they they say, hey, this is good, I'm going to riff on this, I'm going to have a remix of this idea, and I'm going to create another response to that, things like this. And so right. the the idea of this idea accreditation network, which is a nice, you know, fancy uh, phrase that, that you've come up with, is that can you get paid and recognized for the value of your ideas that you put into this network? So like, let's say that in the same way that scientific knowledge gets cited and then the scientists say, hey, I have this many citations, and they go to their universities, and they, I don't know, get a grant, a raise, I don't know what happens. In the, in the same way that this happens in, in traditional knowledge creation, in the knowledge creation of the internet, can we somehow attribute value to ideas and then flow payments through them, such that if you create a, a really brilliant foundational idea that other people rely on re- further advance or remix, the, the, you get economic value back out of it. Yeah, I mean, I would go one further is that if you actually have, if you could map out this network and then if somebody makes money at the end of that network, you could say, make the analogy that it's like a neural network and you would then do back propagation to accredit 
all the sources of the ideas that help this idea become profitable. And then you would just back propagate that accreditation through the entire network. And then so people earlier in the chain would get paid as a result of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I think that this is interesting because there are certain groups of people who are interested in tools for thought and a lot of that, those tools for thought are around note-taking and the curation of knowledge. And a lot of this has been single-player experience, like people just taking notes for themselves yeah. and things. And I think the next step, the next for uh, foray of research is how can you have people collectively advance knowledge, right? So I... I am able to look at the knowledge graph or, or, or uh, that you expose to me, and then I incorporate my own knowledge into this, almost in the same way that Wikipedia is a collab collaborative effort towards building collective knowledge. And, and and so then, when you have this kind of social structure, then of course you also need an incentive structure, right? And so, I think that of course the ultimate incentive structure in our society is money and things like this. And so maybe the Lightning Network can facilitate a incentive structure such that, like you said, if you create a great idea and in somehow it is uh, along the path towards a, a foundational um, advance that makes people money, then you get a, you basically get a, a royalty for putting something good out into this knowledge graph. Yeah, I was thinking in the weird edge case of this is that it would be an intranet in, within a company, a knowledge graph within a company. And so instead of having a salary, you would get paid by this method. <laughs> and so then you would actually be paid directly based on how much you contribute to the company's bottom line because everything is metered. But I, I don't think realistically it could happen because people are like, eh, you know, it's in the execution and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe more realistic scenario is A, if for scientific pursuits, you can get some future like GPT-5 to contribute knowledge as a result. And so it's not just humans contributing, but also bots. And so that's one way that they can earn their keep. And we talked about this in a previous episodes that bots can earn their keep to pay their server costs. And so they might be able to keep on living in the future and perpetuate themselves that way and actually have a job effectively. Yeah. Right. That's kind of one weird idea. But then I think for me, the idea accreditation network most practically maps to kind of like a meme lord market place <laughs> where people are making <laughs> where people are making memes. And those are effectively ideas and they're already re remixing them. And then the things that get spread are the, the ones that go viral. And so if there was a way to track the virality across other social networks, then that's kind of where people are willing to put their mouth. Or maybe like it drives ad ad revenue or something like that, then that kind of feeds back. So not only would people help shape cultural consciousness, but I guess they get paid a little bit of that as well. So by being meme lords, so, <laughs> you know, honestly, I would not be surprised if in the future, uh, museums carried memes as part of like uh, their display of like ancient fine art in the same way that I think one day Eminem and Jay-Z will be considered poets of their day. Like kids will have to study on my high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting the extent to which a lot of this meme culture and internet subculture has permeated mainstream society. I think that people use terminology and things that originated in places of all places like 4chan actually where it is this sort of hive yeah. mind of people and and ultimately 
these memes that we reference, these phrases that we reference, the jokes that we reference, were created by some individuals in those communities, right? It's not a homogenous group of people. It is some individual that you can dub a meme lord, right? Who who has originated <laughs> this idea. And right now, people are creating culture for clout, I think, basically, right? So for the the adoration and their accolades of from their peers. And for the lulls, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for the lulls. But maybe they can get paid and that's a job, you're thinking? Like, there could be some people who have the... Or a career, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, they have the, the cultural savvy to kind of shift our collective attention towards certain things. Yeah, I want to say so. There's definitely people that have their finger on the pulse of the current zeitgeist way better and they're able to leverage that. It doesn't look like a skill originally, right? Yeah. You just look like people are doing random things. Like, I think Kanye West is probably pretty good at that. Like, anything he does seems to resonate with people. And so, I mean, definitely he's done that multiple times. So, I mean, definitely being famous helps, but... You know, like there's plenty of famous people that end up not being famous within a generation or two. And, you know, like you have to keep doing relevant things to stay relevant and in the forefront of people's minds. So, I mean, that 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 that's a something to, to that as a skill. So, so yeah, I think I think meme lords <laughs> will probably find a way to get paid if, if something like this gets built. Interesting. So actually, you know, it, it sounds it sounds really silly, but if I were to step back. I think the, the, the theme, which I will continue to iterate about the Lightning Network, is that when you make payments you know, arbitrarily small and arbitrarily frequent, then basically what you're doing is you're able to fractionalize value to the point where it can be streamed to anyone in arbitrarily small amounts. And if you think about a career which now we've collectively, I think, come to accept, maybe with disdain, as the influencer, right? Uh, th- that is <laughs> what is if my child becomes an influencer of some sort. <laughs> well, even worse, I have a worse future that I'm going to lay out for you. I, I, I think so. <laughs> so, so the influencer is interesting because it's a it's this new phenomenon that has emerged, which is basically what we're talking about. It's somebody who has the cultural competence and savvy to be able to direct our collective attention. But because of I think a variety of incentive structures, but also the the payment infrastructure that exists currently. There's actually a limiting capacity of the number of influencers that we can have because in order to be an influencer and get paid and recognized for your value, more often than not, you have to establish brand deals with known entities or you have to have an audience who is sufficiently engaged and trusting of you that they're willing to sign up for a Patreon or OnlyFans or whatever it is, right? Fairly heavyweight relationship is needed before somebody is able to get paid and recognized for their value. Uh, for example, we create this podcast and nobody trusts us enough to, you know, give us their monthly payment subscription, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's clearly a high high friction before people are, are willing to do this. But if you're... Yeah, so instead of that, you guys should click the <laughs> subscribe button down below to make up for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, but basically, if you're able to fractionalize value to a sufficiently small degree, then... Nobody needs to go and sign up for a Patreon subscription or, or whatever it is. You could have basically these micro-influencers, nano-influencers, femto-influencers who are able to direct our collective attention in what to whatever small degree, right? And you see this with apps like TikTok and things where everybody has like 15 seconds of fame, not even 15 minutes of fame. And maybe through the Lightning Network, if these apps are able to attribute watch time, right, and send arbitrarily small payments for every even second that you watch something that they post, they're able to make money, then they might 
not be able to make a living off of it necessarily. Maybe the big ones can, but there will be a lot of people who are able to at least be recognized for whatever modicum of value that they put out into the world. Yeah, I think the, I wonder if the unit economics will work out for this sort of stuff because, like, if it's so low, there's just some, like, the fixed cost for a human is way lower than a fixed cost for a machine. Like, it may be that like food housing is just so expensive compared to the amount that you would earn on networks for this continuous sort of thing that it feels good to at least have some sort of like financial gain as a result. But unless you can accrue it somehow then it may not turn out to be good enough. So either you crew it because you get positive feedback and it's a winner-take-all sort of thing in that niche that you're in, and so you're in one of the top five and you get all the money, or like you are able to have some sort of content that can be leveraged for reoccurring payments over and over again as new generations like grow into your thing. Yeah, I don't know. I always envy children's book authors i'm like man the royalties on that stuff keeps coming and coming because people keep having kids so yeah. like once you write like a good set of books like, which is not easy by the way i mean many have tried and many have failed but yeah i mean it's it's stuff that parents read to their kids again because they got it read to them as a kid right yeah so so yeah i mean i'm not exactly sure how the economics will work out but i agree with you that the lightning network makes these things possible where it wasn't before simply by the drastic change in quantity being quantitatively different to an order of magnitude becomes a qualitative difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like we, we've talked a lot around meme Lords and stuff like that, <laughs> but like, are there things outside the internet culture you think that this could be applied to? Yeah. I think that payments primarily are a way of attributing value, but also creating an incentive structure for society. Right. And so the the way in which payments are set up changes the structure of society. And I can imagine that if you make a quantitative difference to how small payments can be to the point where there's a qualitative difference in, in how we perceive the way that we receive money or that we pay money, it can really change the way in which things like governments, corporations, insurance companies, all of these entities that have a fiduciary interest in our lives are able to shape the incentive structure of society. Because if you think about the kind of blunt instruments that we have available, for example, governments may be able to incentivize a certain behavior in the citizens by giving a certain type of tax rebate at the end of the year for, I don't know, buying a house or doing some activity that they think is valuable. Uh, similarly, lowering the interest rate or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in the same way, I think even private entities like insurers, a lot of them have some type of incentive scheme for the people that they insure to I don't know, maintain a certain below a certain BMI or something. And they give some, you know, they give a gift card or something once a year, they check your weight at your annual checkup and they give you some reward for staying healthy and things like this. But you can imagine kind of chopping that up and, 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 and sort of fractionalizing that such that rather than once a year you get a lump sum for doing some discrete, achieving some discrete milestone or discrete action, you can continuously receive arbitrarily small amounts of money for continuous habitual behavior, right? And so things like, you know, uh, for example, the, the insurer might be able to pay you for, I don't know, how you eat every day or how you walk how much you walk around every day or or any variety of health metrics that are that is basically a continuous stream 
as long as you're keeping those in line with how they you know want to incentivize your behavior, your health behavior, you might be able to get continuous payments for that. <laughs> I was thinking screw payments for exercise. Maybe I want an NFT for like the three by 12 reps that I've been doing for a month or something like that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but but I, I think I know what you're getting at. Like, I think this sort of thing has been tried before and it's hard to kind of nail down some incentives. But I think at least from the position of a corporation or an insurer, like you want to be able to incentivize behaviors that would, I guess, not only be profitable, but also incentivize healthy behaviors in your employees, right? Like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so maybe there are shoes that meter steps, or actually we don't need shoes. Like we have step counters in our phones and like our watches. Yeah. And so definitely there are privacy reasons not to do this sort of thing. And it sounds a little dystopian in that sense, right? Like governments are paying you or like companies are paying you to do a certain behavior and like you may not agree with it, but you're like, ah, man, I got to eat. So, so you go and do it anyway. So yeah. th there is that, but like m the more positive aspect is along the lines of like not just corporations, but like if you are an activist and you care about say the environment and you want to enable public policies or programs from a governmental level, then even a small bit from everybody can help. Obviously that you have to identify like the biggest say polluters or like whatever it is, but if you can incentivize that as, as kind of one more thing, then it may go a long way. Cause I think one of the issues with like environmental things is that until we had carbon credits, the environment just never figured into the economy at all. So it never appeared on any company's balance sheets and hence they just didn't care about it because it doesn't show up in their dashboard of how they view the world. And so I thought it was a little weird at first when I first heard about it that carbon credits are like, you buy the ability to pollute. Um, but I mean, it, it just lines up with how companies view the world. It's, it's a balance sheet. So unless you're, you find a way to get the environment as a line item on a balance sheet, they're just not going to care about it. And so I, I think viewed in that sense, it's less cynical than they can pay to pollute. Yeah. And what's interesting about carbon credits is that they're still a really new and novel idea and people are still figuring them out, but they're still framed in the old way of discretizing money or discretizing value. I don't know exactly how carbon credits are denominated. I think they're in tons and they're you pay you know some amount of dollars or, or whatever for them. But what's interesting is that you can see a different way of incentive structure arise when you can put it on the lightning network and you can denominate things in even, I don't know, milligrams, I guess, of carbon, right? And you can pay arbitrarily tiny amounts of, of money for this. Not that you would measure your pollution in such with such precision but if you look at something like an electric uh, electric grid and smart grids and things like that mm -hmm. what yeah it this kind of metering has allowed utility companies to do and and how to, they transact with their consumers is that in real time they're able to shift and shape the demand by saying okay this is the current price for this type of consumption and if you have a certain smart meter and you have certain equipment in your home you're able to shift your your consumption to a point where it puts less load on that network, right? And in the same way, you can imagine with environmental yeah. factors like this, rather than just having a fixed price for 
you know, carbon emissions or whatever other environmental externalities, you could have basically a, you know, spot price, like a market-based pricing and say, okay, at this time, because of certain factors in this or other prevailing issues, this is the price for this type of consumption. And at another time, maybe in a different region, instead, you're, you can you can shift your demand to somewhere where it's cheaper and you can do this in the similar way that you change your electricity consumption. You can also change your, I, I don't know, carbon consumption. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that can have ramifications if you are able to shape supply and demand in that way for not just electricity, but I guess, yeah, the other things that people can do, such as exercise or yeah, even driving, I guess. Because aren't there companies that have tried to have some sort of it's something that plugs into your car computer to monitor how you're driving, and based on your drive, would be the insurance company would be able to better estimate the amount of money it takes to insure you. And so, presumably, if you're a good driver, lower your rate. I guess with surveillance, companies like insurance companies in this case would be able to segment their customer base properly yeah. to maximize their profits and ability to insure people. I guess. Yeah. I think it, it, there, there's, there is, I guess, the, there's an underlying assumption or theme that we've been going through, which is one of maybe surveillance, or you are giving your data to these other entities. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that would have to be solved. As it's conceived right yeah. now. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I think that would have to be solved. And, and also, we can, like... We can really make this happen. Right. And also, there's the other instance of, like, how would you handle cheating? Because I guess, like... I guess it's illegal to tamper with electric meters. And so I think people are like, well, trained for that. But like, if there are other things that you want to meter, like exercise, maybe people won't cheat it. Well, I don't know. People hate exercise enough that they're willing to cheat the number of steps in order to earn money. Right. right? And so like somehow, I guess it's the same issue that like oracles have or like any sort of like blockchain solution that's trying to tie into the real world. Like how do you that? number that is being written on chain is actually what's reflected in the real world. And so uh, it, you may have to use the judicial system to, to like enforce that or something. I, I have no idea, but like that is one of the issues with this sort of behavior incentivization issue. Maybe I was thinking like maybe it's just like a like an iterated game in which like if you screw with the system, it just won't let you earn money through exercise anymore. Just like if you screw me, like if I keep give you a service, you don't pay me. I, either I take you to court or I just never transact with you ever again. Right. So maybe it's something similar. I have no idea, but but it's definitely an issue. Like these these sort of things are a little bit hand wavy, partially because like we're trying to project out to that, that core thing about like, oh, what can we have payments for that normally won't think of? But obviously in order for something, for that to work, there's a whole bunch of other things that have to fall in place for that to happen. So yeah, yeah. we're well aware of that. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's I think it's an interesting world to think of, and yeah, we we do have to take for granted maybe in order for all this to work, we would have to have data ownership and data independence and all these things that we've talked about in previous episodes, where people feel yeah. empowered that they own their data, that there are secure ways of sharing this data, and maybe other regulations that prevent the the divulging of all of that data. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about in all of these things is that we are incentive structures in which people get recognized for their value and in order to get recognized for their value they need to provide some service they need to provide some proof that they have provided they have actually delivered on that value and in the current frameworks a lot of that involves maybe invasive methods of surveillance but but hopefully in the future people come up with other other ways of, of doing things 
Yeah, maybe. But then there are other ways that we get surveilled in our current modern lives that we don't give a second thought to. Like, for example, like the credit rating agencies, right. like they know all of our <laughs> transactions and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how it'll turn out. But yeah, th that's definitely an interesting avenue to think about how the future will turn out maybe it's just some mix of horror and convenience like it is in the modern yeah, world yeah. right and i think also that comes to mind as we're describing all of these all of these incentive structures is that at least people in the current generations that i think are alive and mature today really really have an aversion to this type of race pricing and, and things like this there's some like maybe apocryphal tale of somebody i think coca-cola creating a new version of their vending machine the, where the price of the Coke was, I think it was like a dollar when it was a hot day and it was only 50 cents when it was like in the middle of the oh, winter. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, people got mad because they were like, whoa, Coke is more expensive in the summer. How dare you, right? And they, they would rather just pay the dollar no matter what the weather was. They would rather just pay money, more money constantly yeah. throughout the year than feel like they're being sort of manipulated in this way. And I wonder to what extent that is inherent to what extent that's cultural and, and how much that will shift as, as things like lightning make things much more usage-based and demand-based, will future generations just be like, oh yeah, of course you'd pay more to do something uh, because it's in demand. Of course I'd get paid more to do something because, you know, whatever of the of the incentive structures. You know, I, I think it, it depends on the context because I, I think Costco's hot dogs have been like 150 for decades now. And I think partially because it's always meant to be as a lead gen, right? Like the store is so big, like, you know, if people are hungry, they want to leave and get something to eat. They're not going to maybe not come back and shop, right? And so if you can keep them in the store to eat, they'll shop more. It's the same thing that Ikea does. And so I think the 150 hot dog has been around for so long, it becomes a part of every middle schooler's idea of how the world should be like. And as we established in previous episodes, like how we experience the world as middle schoolers is really what we look back at fondly. And so maybe like changing the price on something like that would really get people's pitch pitchforks up and out. And so I think where metered makes sense is when it's a type of, problem that people have intermittently but when they have it it's pretty intense but then once they don't have it it might happen on and off like they would rather just not use it or either because like the machines are too expensive to get and so like the initial cost if you did it yourself would be too high so you would much rather rent some something like that that seems to be the property of something where people are okay with like some sort of metered solution yeah or so like for example if you want to use like a laser jet thing like laser cutter yeah, yeah, yeah. right right i i think another property of a service where people might be open to metering is like we mentioned you don't want to go through the process of establishing a relationship with every party that you're transacting with so you can think of things like phone calls yeah. emails things like this where if you imagine that you want to add a maybe a payment aspect to email maybe to disincentivize spam and things where you don't know yeah. who's going to email you, you don't know who you're going to email, it could be anybody, it's not a fixed set of, of contacts. And so in that case, you don't want to go to go through a fixed cost for every single one of those transactions. You would be open to having this be metered and and pay based on usage. Yeah, like having more and more contractors in your life effectively. Right, right. right. 
Yeah, where where you would want to so-called break up with them at any time. It's like at at will. I guess most employment is at will, but like I guess contractor, it's it's kind of built into the the idea of hiring contractors. Yeah, that's actually interesting because there's this interesting idea about why the firm, which is a way of describing why corporations exist today the way that they do in the modern world. And mm-hmm. one theory, yeah. I forget who who um who came up with this theory, but We'll find it. We'll, we'll find, find it in the, in the show notes. Put it in but the show. one theory is that corporations exist because they're not optimal. Because not everybody, not every worker, is being constantly utilized to the best of their ability at all times. In the same way that if you, as opposed to if you had a contractor, right? You bring them on, you utilize them to the maximum that, of their capacity, and then you part with part ways with them at the end of the project or whatever. But with a salary, salaried employee, you keep them around and you maybe they idle for a bit and they rest invest and things like this. But the reason why corporations are incentivized to do this supposedly irrational behavior is because the switching costs are so high because there are these fixed costs. Every time you want to establish a relationship with a new contractor or with some, somebody, you need to bring them on board. Maybe you need to take their, you need to know how to pay them. You need to know their address. You need to report it to the government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's a pretty heavyweight process. So you can't just go around willy-nilly hiring yeah. and firing people on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis. And so you you keep people on salary. But if you imagine things like the Lightning Network, and maybe you need some other layers on top of this, not just in terms of payments, but in terms of taxation, in terms of other identity verification, reputation verification, all of these things. But if all those things can be sufficiently metered and and smoothed out, then maybe the idea of the of, of a firm, of a corporation that maintains a huge bench of people waiting ready at hand for any variety of tasks, maybe that will actually diminish into the future. Yeah, I, I think that's given that that class of tasks can be broken down into something that's easily describable. And in addition, if it's something that you can farm out to remote workers relatively easily, then that would make geography less important because not only does the work, not only can the work be spread globally, but the payment system as well. And so that means that knowledge workers, I think for the first time, will be competing across the globe. Whereas like when, when manufacturing went overseas, it was the blue collar workers that really got out-competed because they were now suddenly competing with people that had far lo- lower fixed costs uh, as a result. And so I think knowledge workers for a time were only competing in their local area because we were thinking that going into the office was the very idea of what makes work work like. But because of COVID, I think a lot of companies not held on to that idea and kind of fully embrace remote. Obviously not everybody, but when they come to realize that, then they're like, oh, then we can hire people from anywhere. (laughs) So I guess for those of you, yeah, watch out. Like if your task can be easily described and sent somewhere else, I would say you should find something (laughs) more value adding to do. So, I mean, this has been the, the fear for, you know, decades at this point, there were all these books like, you know, the world is flat and things like this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember in the early 2000s when a lot of software coding was being outsourced to India and there were all these articles in the news where journalists were writing that the heady days of the dot-com era is over and it's not a good idea to be a software developer anymore. So please, yeah, I remember that time a lot of my friends 
went on to become uh, consultants and lawyers. And it turns out that being a software developer was still the best thing <laughs> to do. I, I think, it, well, I'll caveat with that saying, like, if you ended up coming to Silicon Valley to work and, and you know, working at one of the things or, or one of the startups that hit it big, yeah. you know, it's it's with caveats. Yeah, so, so I think I think just like people previously were preaching this and, and scared for their jobs, maybe it won't necessarily come around. But I think one thing that makes it a little different. I don't think so either. Yeah, but but I think one thing that makes it a little different, right, in the context of Lightning, Lightning Network and things like this is that there, there's a bit of a moat for somebody who is working for predominantly U.S. corporations, right, that are generating all these value. U.S. workers for U.S. corporations, one big moat that U.S. workers have is actually the payments infrastructure, right? The corporations are able to easily use the U.S. banking infrastructure to pay you because they have dollars in their bank accounts, right, and they're plugged into the U.S. financial system. And now with globalization, it turns out that U.S. corporations are actually global corporations, and they do have offices all around the world, and in many major countries, they're able to easily transact with the workers there as well, but not everywhere. There are, you know, lots of jurisdictions where these corporations don't have physical presence, and they don't have legal presence, and they're not able to actually easily onboard workers anywhere in the world. Whereas with something like Lightning, and of course, we need other layers on top of this as well, uh, but but with, with infrastructure like this, then actually geography becomes entirely unimportant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely there's a lot of things to do. There are companies that hire locally and then present these workers to companies to hire internationally. I forgot what they were called, but those th these businesses do currently exist. But I guess payment is one of the things that I have to work with as well as like taxes. But outside of that, there is a whole bunch of other things. Like, like you said, there's other things that need to be in place lightning to enable these sort of society level changes and global changes so if lightning is as good as it seems and really fulfills its ideal of taking bitcoin from being a, just a store of value to actually a currency that people are using every day on hour by hour basis minute by minute basis if we actually achieve this future how can you know, our listeners and us take a position on it so that we are well positioned to, I don't know, ride this, ride this wave. Well, I guess in, in cryptocurrencies, it's, it's a little bit easier to take a position on things because you can just buy the <laughs> coin. So I guess the one thing is to buy Bitcoin because like, if you believe that, so I, I think one of the things that I heard discussed about lightning network is that it can not just be the payments network for Bitcoin, but also other stable coins. So then at the edges, you would, have a conversion between the stablecoin to Bitcoin and then transact through the Lightning Network and the other side you convert back. And so you don't need to build a new payments network every time for every coin. You can just leverage the Bitcoin network for something like that. And so if that is the case, then probably owning Bitcoin will be valuable. It's the narrow waste by which things are being paid. And so if that's powering a payments network throughout the, the network, it's not just storing value, but it actually has utility in powering a payments network. So I guess that's one way. Another, I think, is if you want to operate one of these Lightning nodes yourself, 
And so Lightning nodes can charge a fee for helping a payment across the network. And so there, it's definitely some amount of work to say, I want to open a channel to these other nodes. These nodes are good. These nodes are bad, you know, and be able to kind of monitoring it. But if you get it to that ideal state, it's just free money that's coming in where you're just routing money for the network and you need to have enough to fund your node so that you can push payments across. But yeah, I mean, that's, I think another immediately obvious way to take a position on on this if you believe in this future. Yeah, I think those are, those are super practical and super actionable. I have a one that's like a little bit more out there and abstract, which is, <laughs> which is, you know, like we were saying, I think that lightning and technologies like this are going to enable new ways of capturing value in actions that wouldn't otherwise have their value recognized today. So if there are certain activities that maybe are, are available online, for example, like editing Wikipedia or contributing to some knowledge graph or to contributing to some subculture and things like this, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as being worth your time or worth developing the skills to do. I think that one way that you can take a position mm. on this is actually to maybe just indulge in them and, and do them because in the future, it's a, there's a very real possibility that the things that people are doing today for free as labor labors of love in turn for just thanks and kudos in the future would actually mm -hmm. be economically valuable. And so maybe not for our listeners yeah. in places like the United States and the developed world, but you know, we have listeners throughout the world. If there are, if you live in a place where you know cost of living is low and the alternatives of employment are not that lucrative, there may be certain economic activity that you can start looking towards that you can do on the internet, which would be valuable enough for you to do. Yeah, I would say that's probably generally true even outside of the Lightning Network. I mean, people are starting to find ways to get paid for doing what they would have done anyway. And so I think people usually call this like the, what is it, the the creator, content creators or creator, like, you know. And so I think there's a bit of hype around it. And obviously a lot of kids yeah. want to be YouTube influencers just like us. Right. <laughs> But 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 I think the skills that you learn in communicating why the niche is important to you and how to resonate with other people and having writing an essay and a narrative along with the video editing skills to communicate that will probably go a long way whether like however you get paid and lightning will just help make that more frictionless and so like some of the other things we said it, it will help things but it's it's not the only catalyst that needs to happen and so I think if you want to take a position on that like that being there is makes you better positioned than if you were working nine to five at some company somewhere where you can't even talk about what you're working on and develop like time to be passionate about things, I think. So, so I, I can see where you're going with that because yeah, I don't know. I heard a quip about how everybody's dream job is on the internet somehow, but most people don't realize it. I don't know how true <laughs> that is, but it's, it's the, it's in reference to, to what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, like you can find plenty of comic strips in the 80s where it makes fun of kids that play video games all day. And, you know, in the future, parents are like, oh, he can make so much money playing video games and jokes on them. Turns out that that's the case, right? right? There's, there's like professional leagues of video game players and it shocks nobody nowadays. Yeah, and so now we've taken that for granted. And I think the, the new version that maybe Lightning can enable is you know, some kid who is a meme lord, like, like you said. And there's like, no, there's no, you know, why would anybody just be, you know, meme lord on the internet? Well, yeah, maybe in 10 years, those are the people who 
are going to be well compensated for being able to direct our collective attention and shift our culture. Yeah, I mean, and then in 50 years, they'll be lauded in museums. <laughs> so, like, I wouldn't put it past culture <laughs> to do something yeah. like that. I think for people that are building companies or products, another way that you can take a position is to write metering software. Because if you believe that the low value, high volume payments are going to be metered, then chances are people would want some way to measure some aspect of their business and then be able to charge people for it. And so if you have a business that provides companies this tool, basically you're you're building the pickaxe for them to get money. That should seem like it's pretty lucrative, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, people are willing to pay for things that make them more money. So I, I think that would probably be another good place to position yourself if you can build metering software that other companies would want to use to charge their customers. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they're, they're the same with there's a cottage industry of analytics tools and all these types of tools for our traditional payments, internet payments like Stripe and things. There yeah. might be even a similar cottage industry for these types of metered payments as well. And there might be many companies that, uh, that can really capitalize on that. I mean, we're beginning to see some parts of it. I mean, like AWS charges you money and people are like bewildered about like why their bill is so high. So there's like companies that help you manage your AWS bill, like be able to explain to you like why is it so high and how you can lower it. So yeah, I mean, that that's like another class of things probably. Yeah. I think when it comes to the Lightning Network, I'm relatively optimistic. I think there are some things that I'm a little hesitant about, especially the routing and how that would scale up to the entire planet. But I think it's definitely something that has a great big potential. And like once it gets going, it's going to be a network effect on top of Bitcoin's network effect. And so it'll probably be very hard to displace once it's there. And so then we would actually get a payments network with low fees, not run by any single entity. And so that I think can only help. Like whenever we've gotten commons, like the internet, like it's anybody can build on top of it, which provides a lot of creativity into the type of things that you can build on top. So generally I'm pretty optimistic. And maybe one day when we become space faring species, like maybe we'll have like metered air. <laughs> and, and I don't know, like any number of things can happen. Maybe people will say, no, breathing is a human right. And then so people will only charge for like smells like air that smells a certain <laughs> way like with roses or something so so i mean I, I think the possibilities are endless and definitely i think it's one of those things where like we mentioned when it's big enough and orders of magnitude which these micropayments would be then you get a quantitative change in difference that enables all sorts of applications that wouldn't be feasible before and it's a little hard to imagine right now but we're, we're trying our best yeah, here yeah i mean i'm enthusiastic i generally like when things become into the shape of other things I already like. And I think that lightning makes payments look a lot more yeah. like the internet, which is clearly a successful model of routing information. And maybe lightning is the potential to make the same changes for, for payments and have all those effects that came out and that you just recapped. I think it's cool. I think just generally it's a new mental model of thinking about money, thinking about transactions, the level of trust that's required between parties to transact, as well as thinking about incentives and at what granularity can incentives be, can value be incentivized and captured. So it's, it's kind of interesting, if not for the technical merit alone, just also for its maybe philosophical. And so, yeah, I think it's, I'm generally optimistic about the idea. 
And so with that, I mean, I would say our enthusiasm and optimism is taken off. I, I don't know. Like, how do you feel yeah, about definitely that? taking off is, is is the right right phrase. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll see you on the Lightning Network, and maybe we can pay each other for I don't know talking to our microphones or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, so if this episode opened your eyes, check out our other episodes where we talk about other edges of technology and why they're interesting and especially what sort of future they point to. Check it out and subscribe. And so be sure to also check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Write us a review to help bring other technologies on board. And with that, this is, this is real. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.